Welcome back to my dad's podcast, season two, My Blackest Challenge National. Follow him on Twitter or Instagram. Hope you enjoy the show. Bye! listening to my black is transnational hello everyone my name is dr kalechi bay lambert and coming up on today's episode we'll be talking about the nigerian ban and what that really means for nigerians in the united states and outside of the united states in nigeria we'll also talk about the concept of black positionality and how black people are positioned from a global perspective and how it plays a role for us as potential cultural ambassadors and cultural brokers for the rest of the world in relation to black immigrant and just native african-american culture so i have a conversation with dr ife yaniku and we talk in great detail about all these topics and more so i know it's been a while please forgive me we are going through some changes we're going through some small transitional changes well one small and one big okay well the big one is obviously i've mentioned many times on this podcast that we are expecting the birth of our second child so that is happening very soon so we are in preparation for that and that has kind of kept me from being able to record and publish the podcast episodes that i've been wanting to get to you on time so forgive me for not being able to keep to the timeline and secondly we are also going through some transition in regards to our studio and our equipment so we will be upgrading in regards to some of our podcast equipment and the where we're going to be recording our podcast from now on so you will notice maybe hopefully an improvement or at least a change in the quality of the podcast hopefully for the better so please bear with us um specifically bear with me as i'm trying to make sure that i can have it all ready for you all and and be able to produce some quality um quality podcasts and content for you all as we continue to grow as a podcast so thank you for sticking with me and um bearing with us and yeah so i just wanted to put that out there as a disclaimer all right so before we get deeper into the conversation let's go through our formalities if this is your first time listening to my black is transnational you can find this podcast on any of your favorite podcast listening apps whether it's spotify google apple stitcher wherever you like to listen to really good podcasts you can find this on there as well if you like what you hear please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and provide some feedback we always want to hear what you think about it please share it with your friends word of mouth is always effective let them know what this podcast is about we really appreciate the support and we know that we are slowly growing we want to be we want to be the best for you Okay, so please make sure that you continue to share and spread the word. We appreciate it. In order to do that, you can follow us on Instagram at Black Transnational Podcast. That's the podcast um, page. But you can also follow my handle at Black Transnational underscore if you want to learn more about me and my my life and my research related to transnationalism. And if you just want to know everything there is to know about this podcast, you can check out our website at blacktransnational.wixsite.com slash podcast. Okay. And then you can always email us too at blacktransnational17 at gmail.com. So that's it. That's every that's every way that you can reach out to us if you want to know more. You just want to get in touch with us. You want to be a guest on the show. You want you got some words for me. You got some feedback. Whatever you want to do, holla at us. We're here to listen. All right. So our guest for this episode is Dr. Ifenyiwa Oyeneku. It's a really good friend of mine who hails from Louisiana State University and got her doctoral 
degree at University of Illinois. Um, she considers herself a social scientist and is very passionate about issues related to black culture, to us black folks as um, cultural brokers and ambassadors. We really get into a great, enriching, long conversation and very fun conversation, I must add, about black positionality and how black people are treated globally as second-class citizens, but how we have the tools, the resources, the swag, the persistence, the perseverance to be able to supersede all of that and actually be the cultural brokers and ambassadors for the world related to black culture and how our positions um, in various areas, in science, um, in, in health, and whatever topic, but how we position ourselves from a global standpoint is very critical. And then we delve deeper into a lighter conversation about the Nigerian ban and the, the current uh, administration mandate to ban Nigerians from coming in um, under some specific conditions, coming into the United States seeking residency. We get into greater detail about that. And you'll notice that this podcast, compared to my other podcast episodes and talks, have been um, just one part. And this one is two it's broken into two parts because you'll notice how the atmosphere kind of changes in our conversation and the tone changes a little bit because we start off a little bit informative or very academic. Um, Dr. Oyeniku really breaks down her passion and her um, the things that she works on and why she works on it and why it's very paramount for us to understand black positionality you know, from a social science standpoint. But then we switch off gradually into a lighter tone, a little bit more fun and airy conversation about the Nigerian ban. Very passionate conversation about it, um, but fun nonetheless. So you will kind of feel how both phase or both sides kind of are different. So I wanted to split it in both parts for, for you all, the listeners. So without any further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Oyeneku. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Black is Transnational. And today we have on our special guest who will be talking with us. Visiting us today is Dr. Ifeniwa Oyeneku. All right, from Stony Brook University, who will be joining us to talk about her experiences and also be able to chime in on the Nigerian ban that is happening recently. So I just this has been my OG for the longest, right? I, I can honestly say that um, Ife has been a tremendous contributor to my growth and success as a as a colleague, as a peer, as a friend, as a sis. So it's definitely an honor to be able to have. Um, an up and coming, just an a boss in the field, um, especially in education, uh, who is going to tell us a little bit more about herself. Um, I just wanted to give her an accolades really quickly. Uh, but uh, <laughs> welcome. What's going on? Hi, I mean, all is well over here. Um, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, as you have correctly stated we go back we got our wings together these phd wings um and you know i'm happy to soar with you as we do this thing called life so yeah 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 i mean it's, it's definitely been a long journey but definitely more to come uh, more ahead so if you could just take a quick second or two or three to just let our listeners know who you are where you represent and what your you know what your research is or just anything you want to share with our listeners yeah, so um, where am I at right now is work-wise, I am currently um, 
a professor at Stony Brook University in the School of Dental Medicine with a, uh, an appointment in the higher ed administration. Um, I am a faculty in the Department of General Dentistry, and that's mainly because I am exploring and extending my research, which I'll go into. Um, I hold an administrative role also as an assistant dean of admissions and student affairs. It's been really amazing to see how my training and research on higher education administration is um, translating into real time right now in the administrative end. So it's been nice to really find my sitting as a scholar practitioner, being able to think about in real time what ways can we use research to inform practice and in what ways does practice inform um, really great questions and ideas. So that's work-wise. And then research-wise, I'm just an inquisitive person who's been able to parlay my personal inquiries into life work as a researcher. And I find that to be a very um, amazing opportunity to do what I think is enlightening, I guess, um, for a living. So uh, for the last few years, I've been exploring issues and um, inquiries around a number of different things. But most recently, I've been looking at taking a critical perspective, uh, critical racial analysis on um, identity development. And I'll go into a little bit of that later, I'm sure. Um, and I've been also having the pleasure of kind of globetrotting a little bit and thinking about what does that look like as it pertains to specifically Nigerians. As we are, you know, my humble brag about Nigerians right now since we're in the press is that <laughs> despite haters, you know, that Niger no they carry last is, is real because um, if anything, this is the best PR that we've had about Nigerians. Every time they talk about the band, people are dropping our stats and we are being able to highlight our brilliance because, um, you know, there's a number of different things that are aligned with Nigerians. And the, right now we're really getting a, a, a better rep of it by highlighting our brilliance and how we've added to the development of the world. So, you know, it's a good time to be um, a researcher. It's a good time to be, in my viewpoint, Nigerian always. So, yeah, that's me. I mean, wow. Like, yeah, that was... um. I mean, I think that was well well said and well encapsulating of who you are. And I think I want to dive into a little bit of your research before we really start gisting about how we as Nigerians never carry last, um, despite how people try very hard to try to keep us last. We're like ants, man. Um, but you mentioned something about, you know, just using critical um, th race theory to to kind of help with um with racial identity uh and how do you apply that in how do you how have you applied that in like your past research or even like your current research now with Nigerians? So in many ways, and I want to talk about the scholar practitioner piece because it's interesting that in my dissertation and my dissertation or my first project looked at the ethnic and racial identity development of Nigerians at predominantly white institutions, right and Part of my, what I found from that research was that, A, in higher education, like practical things, A, in higher education, administrators really don't know what to do with the diversity within the black community. 
And so therefore it gets collapsed to a homogeneous experience. And that translates for administrators sometimes when it comes to documentation, uh, documentation which is important because we think about resources and we think about, um, mainly we think about resources, right? And that, how that matters. And what I saw was that from the data, from interviews, folks talked about how when they identified themselves in documentation and ways that spoke to their transnational, international, or immigrant background, that folks didn't know where to put them, particularly administrators, right? Because I was looking at um, institutions of higher learning. And what that did in regards to how we advise ethnically diverse black populations or just diverse populations, um, whether it be a student organization or how we advise them in regards to um, their academic and career pursuits, it started to show that that mattered, right? So mm -hmm. in my, my second project that looked at Nigerian returnees, part of what came out of that is that Nigerians are as resourceful as they are with the communities that they have built um, informally, we also see that there's room for improvement when it comes to institutions that have hosted them in their pursuit for degree attainment. And so what does that look like? It looks like there's, there's room for improvement when it comes to acknowledging their power as uh, alumni base. There's room for improvement when it comes to career centers being able to provide advice as it pertains to job placement when you're dealing with people with different citizenship statuses and, and so forth. So my work has been helpful in um, further unpacking, sometimes complicating, sometimes asking more questions and not doing a, a general collapse and really illuminating the ways in which ethnically diverse um, backgrounds impact how we think about resources or service to folks. Um, and so I talked about critical racial analysis because um, race is this interesting thing that most scholars have agreed upon as a social construct. Okay, so mm -hmm. if we agree that race is a social construct, what does it mean within the context of the United States, which has already placed a hierarchy, a racial hierarchy, where whites are on the top and people of color on the bottom. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's important because we have to make sense of that context, that history, in order to think about identity development. So, yeah, those are some of the things that I'm um, pushing in very practical ways as administratively goes or even in um, research ways scholarly ways when we are looking at our participants, when we're looking at our populations, when we're looking at patients, when we're looking at um, health disparities, what does it mean in regards to how we are collecting data and how are we understanding our participants? Mm. That's really dope. And you know, one of the things that, that's, that resonates with me is what you just highlighted regarding like returnees. Um, and, you know, and I'm assuming that you're talking about returnees who just got back to the motherland, right? Yeah, yeah, right. like Nigerians who 
So I did my research, the second project, in Nigeria. And I followed up with a lot of my participants for my first project. And then they helped me expand. And then I followed up. What what is interestingly enough um, was able to kind of capture uh, a generational kind of um, look where it's like you had people who were just coming back. And you had people who had had retired back. Mm -hmm. And you had... so. It was a really interesting kind of um, compare and contrast when you when you thought about it from a historical sense again yeah. as well. Yeah, because I, I know that there's this thing. I remember being back in Nigeria and I remember talking to a cousin of mine and he alluded to something very similar as far as just this, the generational gap and what in the people they call um, IJGB, which is I just got back. And you know, mm-hmm. you know as Nigerians, we always carry our acronyms. Um, with us wherever we go so uh, and I think you know just there, there was this gap in between not just generationally but also like culturally and because mm-hmm. those who arrived back from the United States with more education with more resources they came in with opportunities to get more advanced jobs um, sometimes people are coming back for they want to do their youth service and things of that nature yeah. Um, so did you experience people of those types of, um, ilk or no? Well, so, you know, after doing the project, I realized because of my sample, right? So I was following up with people who had already studied abroad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it was a sample that was, um, particular, right? So, and I say this because many of, or if not all of my participants, they had received degrees or schooled in probably North America, including U.S. and Canada, mainly U.K. I think maybe I interviewed one elder person, elder, <laughs> who um, studied in Paris. And so I found it to be interesting and more room for someone to fund me so I can continue to do this research <laughs> is because what was brought to my attention when I was at a function, which was actually like an MBA um, function that was at a hotel for returnees, was that there were, there's, there was missing, of course, um, there's a number of different groups that was missing, but one that I think caught my eye that I want to follow up with is there's, there's a school of Nigerians who study on the continent, you know, mm. um, that return that went to, that go to Ghana or South Africa or wherever. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's definitely opportunity there to look into that population of folks. But given my, you know, simple sample and how um, I was collecting or I was able to obtain my participants, I wasn't able to tap into that, that population of folks. Um, and so the people of the Elk, so they're, they're, what I think is interesting, there's a number of different, groups of folks that I found and what I was uh, and the, the research was really an extension or uh, was informed by a study that was done um, with Indians mm. India Indians and um, it was entitled like for love or money and it was really highlighting the main reasons why Indians went, returned and at the, that point in time of the research it was during a re- you know our recession and second generation which was you know Folks who were born and raised in the U.S. were returning to India and were finding opportunities there. 
And if I think about the point in which I went to Nigeria, which was 2015, it was right on the cusp of electing a new president. Mm-hmm. Um, and a number of different national security issues, this, that, and the other. I was really interested to see, you know, what were the reasons folks came back. And they can name a number of different reasons. And what I found was for the uh, our generation, there were many of them who went back for patriotism reasons. I would consider it patriotism reason, whether it was they had a connection with their family and they wanted to make sure that they had been married in Nigeria or that they didn't want to become a second-class citizens abroad. Mm-hmm. And they found that, you know, being there was many opportunities in Nigeria, that in Nigeria, the fact that they had studied abroad spoke to their level of exposure, which would make them very viable candidates for international companies. There were many different reasons, and and folks were really tapping into it all. Um, Folks came back because they had business ideas. They had political aspirations. It it was a gamut, and they were utilizing their own network to really understand how to um, navigate that return. Um, And for everybody that then end up end up returning, and I think it's interesting, you know, especially that we're speaking it from the you know the U.S. side right now. Mm-hmm. No matter how nice 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 folks are here in the U.S., the curve in coming back is real. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you're at least four years out, no matter what, if you've obtained a degree, maybe even more. And as much as you feel like you're going to come back and start exactly where you left off. There is, you know, society continues to move, right. you know, there's slang, there's culture, there's development politically, and that learning curve is what folks spoke about the most, you know, just having to get their footing back when they when they returned. And this is folks, whether they were born and raised in Nigeria, or I mean, I interviewed folks who were spent the, you know, majority part of their time abroad, mainly in like the West, mainly US or UK. So there was a number of different dynamics that were happening at the time, and they were all really interesting to kind of explore. Wow. So that means, like, even despite the strength of their transnational ties, coming back home after an extended period of time still proved difficult, or I should say challenging, for those returnees because they still had to, like, reacculturate themselves back to Nigeria for this instance, right? Yeah, I mean, so for some more than others, right? So yeah. there's a different, there's a number of different folks that I interviewed, and so it ranged from people who are born and raised in the U.S. or people who just left for school, right? Mm-hmm. And so of course those experiences are going to be, you know, they're going to have their range. And but I think what was a consistent message, no matter what, was that you know it's definitely a learning curve and some people will experience a more easy transition than others given their network. So if you were, let's say if you were born and raised in the U S Ebo and wanted to land yourself in Lagos, um, for the most part, people had family because, you know, they're not just up and buying homes in Lagos. They had family that they were staying with that they relied on to kind of help them get off their feet. And, you know, Lagos has a particular dynamic, um, and for that person, it might be more challenging to tap into a, a scene or a network space that is really more advantageous for folks who graduated from the University of Lagos or who are residents of Lagos. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. we we understand how diverse Nigeria is, 
each one of those stories made my original proposal to just look at Nigerian returnees, it reminded me that we are a very uh, diverse group of people, even even within, you know, Nigeria and just, you know, um, different diaspora experiences. So it was a good, it was a good, you know, step in really kind of further unpacking it in a, in a really empirical study type of way. I really I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I still have questions that I, I will be sure to extend to my next project. That's the making of a long career, man. <laughs> like, when you're, able to, you, when you're, when you're able to ask more questions, when you're able to have something that can create more questions, we're going to be in this game for a minute. <laughs> like, for real. Um, That's the goal. Yeah, yeah. So let I want to shift gears a little bit because I, I'm curious now, just for the sense of context, what, like, your background, and for those who don't know, like, your background is in social work, right? So, like, what, and I, and I believe, origin, is it, is, was your original um, uh, Alma LSU, Louisiana State University? Yeah, the Louisiana State, home of the champions, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I only know excellence. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> there you when go. it comes to football. Yeah, I, I, I have, I, I look at myself generally as a social scientist. Okay. Um, I have a bachelor's in sociology a master's in social work and a PhD in ed policy organization and leadership with a concentration in higher ed. That's the long of it. Um, generally, I'm a social scientist. I'm inquisitive. Um, and there have been so many discourses that have not had a, a real, you know, world or, you know, th- that needs more support in pushing the conversation with voices like ours mm-hmm. who are are present but are also um, critical enough to think about the historical context of um, what I saw at the time when I was in my master's program, conversations that laid flat. For instance, um, when I was entering my PhD program, an article that really caught my eye was this attention to black immigrants in higher education. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... It was highlighting the number of people of immigrant origin, black immigrant origin at Harvard. And why that was important was because there was attention to these exclusive selective spaces in higher education that bore the elite class of the U.S. Mm -hmm. And so there was this dialogue about, you know, um, who are these black people that are at these Ivy League institutions? And I, I already could feel the tension that was that was presented in that framing, mm-hmm. and I have since written about, you know, that type of discourse that kind of further perpetuates or creates a new a new set, you know, of model minority right. quote unquote model minority statuses with Black immigrants, but do, and does it in the same way that was harmful when it was done with Asian Americans that are now doing it and using black Americans to do the same, black immigrants to do the same. And I say it's harmful because it puts the attention on successes without acknowledging systemic barriers that are, that are thrusted upon um, many folks and oftentimes including black immigrant folks. So what it does is that it pits minorities against each other or minoritized groups against each other in order to save and further, you know, scapegoat 
injustices that have been happening on a systemic level for 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 years at the at the actual origin of you know this country. So that that that's what I'm excited about as far as critical racial analysis is really taking on the historical underpinnings of some of these conversations and thinking about who benefits from the storytelling. Um, and what ways do power, privilege, and oppression illuminate some of the things that are not being discussed? Yeah, yeah and I think, you know, now I got to segue into what you just mentioned regarding the amount of minority myth in the Black yeah. community. But I want to mm-hmm. know your stance on, because you alluded to the, 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 the article and the tension behind it. And I start to think about the tension that may or may not, depending on your perspective, exist interracially between African or Black immigrants and African Americans. And I want to know what your take is on that, because I do think there's a pitting on one group versus the other. And I want to know, what do you think about that? Do you think it's something that is palpable or it's, 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 it's phasing out? Like, what do you think about that? I think that there's been a number of different salient pop culture moments that have really brought this conversation to the surface. And what I am hopeful for is that scholars start raising the voices of diaspora folks to enter this conversation in ways that have not been happening or have been happening, but we haven't been able to be aware of it because of the way that publications are set up where, you know, only a certain aspect or a portion of the world are able to publish in certain journals for a number of different reasons, whether it be language barrier issues or um, just purely the, gatekeeping that comes with publications. So I think there's, I think it's the, the, the topic of intra, whether you call it intraracial or diaspora tensions, whether they're real or not real, is one that really needs in-depth time to really unpack, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a real, it's a real thing. I will acknowledge the fact it's a real thing. But I think also what I am, what I discussed in um, my book chapter called Black Solidarity Matters. I highlighted the fact, and this is why I say history is important, is that there's been a loss in our education system, in our consciousness of the highlighting of Black leaders from all over the globe that have identified a human rights issue when it comes to people of African descent. And in many ways, we have been able to, and there's many well-documented parts in our history, we have been able to come together Um, We have been able to identify, we have been able to love each other in really beautiful ways throughout, you know, the spans of time that I would like to see get more attention. You know, I was just watching the documentary Who Killed Malcolm X. Me too. And it talks about how, on Netflix, check it out. Yeah, it's good. It talks about how Malcolm X went abroad, you know, he went to not only Mecca, Mm -hmm. which, you know, if you are a student of his writings, you would have, uh, you know, known that he went in his book, uh, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. But he also went to all these different African nations. Mm-hmm. You know, he went to Nigeria. Mm-hmm. He went to a number of, and, 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 and during his time, and he found and sought refuge in that level of brotherhood and that level of humanity. And there have been um, well-documented cases of um, different countries in the, the Caribbean who have um, supported independence on the continent 
and um, vice versa. I don't think it's enough attention. And I think it matters and it's important and I highlight it because some of these tensions are burst out of lack of representation or even education of those important historical facts that don't allow for us to really see models of you know, our, our solidarity. And I think we have opportunities in Black Lives Matter, which is an international movement. I mean, I, I followed Black Lives Matter when it was here in the States and how it impacted a lot of student activism on campuses in the U.S. And because of the United States being such a powerhouse and a platform, even if you are of what one would might call a racial underclass in the U.S., um, you automatically become um, a world power house on a global scale. What do I mean by that? If, I mean, in, in small examples, such as if you have a passport or if you are a U.S. citizen, the access that you have into countries, if you compare it to like the 43 that my ECOWAS Nigerian passport can get me into versus mm -hmm. if you're in the U.S., you can get into over 170-something countries. And that's significant when we think about the political, you know, positioning of Black people across the world. I think that is something that, I, you know, I really want people to understand what their positionality means on a global scale, especially when you're constantly surrounded by messaging that, you know, you that you're part of a stigmatized group. Mm -hmm and you are attached to a collection of negatives. This is something that is a propagated campaign that has been going on for such a long period of time that is affecting every person of African descent. No matter where you go in the world, people of African descent are um, treated as an underclass, even on the mm -hmm. continent, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of getting off here a little bit, but- No, you're not. I think- what, I got you. Okay. I'll bring it back. <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm really trying to highlight is the fact that um, the conversation is real between the tensions, but they're only real because we have not been able to really explore different models of our solidarity that have happened and occurred in history. And we have not been able to have a real honest conversation about how we need to really indict dominant narratives that have played such a huge role in our divisive um, dialogue. Yeah and our understanding of each other. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really my position. Yeah. I mean, I, I really never like to reduce the conversation of, oh, Africans talk negatively about African-Americans. Oh, Africans think negatively about Africans. I right. think it's such, I think I really want to push past the conversation to think about how do we understand each other? Where do we get our sources of knowledge about each other from? And what role does that play in how we see each other? So the answers to those questions really, I think, bring on a deeper conversation and discourse about our interpersonal relationships. I think that's very introspective of you because I think we have to look at, we have to be able to look at it from all angles um, and look beyond what's just in front of us as far as this this plate of messed up Eba and messed up okra soup that they're trying to give us. <laughs> and, and feed us, you know, in a sense of what the device, the divisive nature you mentioned between, you know, both parties I alluded to already. And I do think you were like you mentioning the Malcolm X thing is a really important um, point because I was watching the documentary and in my mind, I mean, I was just thinking like, man, what if like, I, even though I, we, we can always 
guess what it but i i mean you start to, you started to see the movement the pan-african movement that he was trying to kind of bring forth to the united states and the blacks in the united states and all that so i mean i i do think there's something to be said about what's not being said about how black people across the globe have made attempts to unify and there's more love and things like that and acceptance of others you know that don't get told because of controls the narrative so i i understand that um a hundred percent and there are lots of questions i was going to ask you but you kind of touched on it already so i'm not going to be too redundant but one of the things that I want to go back on really quickly is, and you know, for those who already know, Ife and I go back, as we mentioned already, and I remember we used to have a lot of really, really, really dope conversations. And in the same vein of what you mentioned as far as Black people across the world and this this dominant narrative, and I think about what we talked about when you were talking about study abroad back when we was at U of I. Mm-hmm. I think about that concept. You, it still remains in me, um, that poverty porn, right? That white... Mm-hmm. Um, savior complex and this poverty point that exists, right? And I remember you used to tell me about how, you know, study abroad initiatives are always done by these others who go to your native country and come back and want to tell you about what your country is about when you have mm-hmm. folks here. So, I mean, I want you to kind of like share that with our listeners because I think that concept is brilliant. And I think they need to hear that as well, in my opinion. Yeah, so... At the University of Illinois, I was the president of the African Skin Organization. That was such a, I think, formative experience for me. I think that being able to be a part of a community of young, ap- brilliant African minds from all over the globe that found themselves in uh, Urbana-Champaign, um, who were asking similar questions that we're asking, interdisciplinary, and I think for me, Growing up in the United States of two Nigerian immigrant parents who for who has was very familiar with Nigerian communities because, you know, I came from a family that was very proud of our, our background in in ways that was really just about self love and appreciation and respect. Um, being able to engage with brilliant African minds from around that was you know, there's not that many opportunities that you have to do that with your peers that I had had to do that with my peers. And so that was um, a a brilliant experience. And so what came from that was that oftentimes I'd be charged to either be a reference about a particular issue. And at the time it could have ranged from the Bring Back Our Girls campaign that was highlighting the sex trafficking of um, girls that were kidnapped and from school in Northern Nigeria, or if it was the Ebola virus, which was educating people that Africa is so big that if you are going to start banning all Africans, if you look at the distance, there's closer distance between um, European countries and Africa than there are, you know, from certain places in Africa to the United States. And just realizing that you could be at an institution of higher learning and there is so much ignorance when it came to the continent. Um, And ignorance is not even a negative thing. It's a part of life. Um, but I think the expectation from being at an institution that there's knowledge that's readily available and that you have people who have certain expertises. And what I found was that we were in an interesting position to be experts. I think we were, we were immediately thrust into expert positions as students because there's just so much misinformation about the continent. And so 
it was a privilege to serve and to try to do my best to represent um, a whole continent in ways that gave justice to our, our storytelling in authentic ways. And so part of what came from that was that we would oftentimes um, be confronted with promotional materials that were advertising study abroad programs. And sometimes these advertisements showed up on the World Wide Web and they would have a student who was doing engineering and that was doing water wells in Mali or a student who was learning Wolof in Senegal or a student who was studying abroad in South Africa or a student who was teaching abroad in insert wherever. And what we noticed one particular um, time that I that I actually started my one of my first publications as a doc student um, was an image of a girl who was an engineering student who was just surrounded by African children in you know a, a, a very rural background setting. The claim was that this image was representing her going to Mali to help create water wells. Well, we would learn from our one of our members that was also an engineering student that they were familiar with that um, particular project and program that actually utilized local organizations to actually teach students. And the way that it was positioned in the promotional material that was now being advertised on the front page of University of Illinois' website was quite the opposite. There was no real connection from the image that had anything to do with water wells with it just being like a what looked like a photo op with, with kids. Mm. And so we wrote a letter basically highlighting and bringing attention to the communication director that posted the image uh, with no response, by the way. Mm. We asked for a dialogue about the, the impact of these types of images the um, representation, we asked poignant questions, asking if that, those images brought dignity to those populations. We um, raised the question of the, um, the uh, implications of having minors on a worldwide web. Permission was given. We really, we really wanted to engage in a critical dialogue with the respect of the fact that we were at an institution of higher learning and that, this, that we as uh, the African student organization saw ourselves in those children and that, you know, now we are at a time where you can no longer go on, um, for lack of a better word, unchecked. <laughs> yeah. You can no longer go unchecked and in hopes that nobody would respond to this type of callous uh, representation. And so while we did not get a dialogue, we, we were able to see that the image was was removed and quickly what was put back was an image that was actually reflective of the project with local adults that represented the project of water wells better so right. they had just goes to show they had access to these different images that could represent and there was a desire to really capture what many scholars talk about the western imagination and the mm. cultural other the exotification of africans and so poverty porn explains this desire of the West to exploit the condition of the poor and oftentimes to draw sympathy from the reader. And what the dialogue that I'm pushing and being a part of the discourse is the damage 
that comes from doing that, the violence that comes from that. And, and when I say violence, I talk about harm, um, you know, the harm that comes from these types of images that make us, um, that, that, that present this idea that, you know, intervention has to come from the outside and that there's no local intervention that's happening. That's a very dangerous premise that has started many colonial projects across the world. And so, you know, something that seems to be as innocent as an image on the World Wide Web, we really brought in um, a dialogue that I think is appropriate for a space such as, you know, college campuses that claim that they are preparing, you know, culturally competent leaders who are able to participate in globalization and, you know, um, helping to to further grow the global economy. Yeah, if we are doing that, and I believe we are, because if you just think about the percentage of people who have college degrees, I, I take that as a huge responsibility that mm -hmm. institutions have. And because what we learned are that is that institutions are not equipped to really have the framing or the underpinning or the perspective that, you know, us occupying these spaces are important to our survival. They are important to our growth. They are important to our national and local security. And when I say our, I'm talking about um, those of us that call home places not only the United States, but places abroad as well. Because right. we cannot give license or excuse or permission to anyone to feel that they have the right to occupy another place um, for the sake of whether it was, it's to help or to explore or whatever else. So, you know... Poverty porn gave me that language, you know, gave me that terminology that explained all of that, the repercussions of these images and the repercussions of the legacy, the mm -hmm. colonial legacy mm -hmm. that further, that continues to haunt us today. Yeah. Yeah. And they truly do. And I mean, there's so many, um, so many ramifications that come along with that, as you already mentioned, but even just, even on a more simplified level for those who may not you know, just for an example is when you come and you start to think about how people ask you about Africa and, and the huts and do you live in a hut and do you see a lion? And I mean, I've, I've had my, one of my relatives, you know, my in-laws ask me that like, seriously, like, you know, have you ever seen a lion when you were growing up? And I'm like, <laughs> if you're talking about the my lion on a, if you're talking about the lion on a pig jeep like four four five oh four car, yeah, I've seen a lion. But <laughs> other than that, like I, the only time I go into village is during Christmas, and the village is nice. Like it's not that bad. So. I'm telling you, <laughs> you this is why. Like you know, I actually I hurt for people who don't understand how lit it is across the world. People are out here living life. Um. It's lit, and it's not to, uh, you know, undermine the real challenges that come with being in any developed area, but it's to say that there is breadth to our experiences yes. that cannot be reduced to the Lion King narrative. <laughs> like, we cannot, we are not a cartoon. You know, my favorite response is my mom's when she came to the U.S. She always tells the story that people ask that question. And it's funny how these types of um, folklores, they retain themselves mm -hmm. throughout the generations. I mean, my mom's still being asked the same questions that we could be asked today. I find it to be interesting. She talked about how the first time she ever saw a lion was at the Oklahoma City Zoo. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was right. in the U.S. Right. It was the first time she ever got close to a lion. 
Um, yeah, it's a shame that, you know, information is not being shared in ways that are accurate, you know, and that the type of ramifications it has for us on just an interpersonal level <laughs> and just having a conversation with people. How many times do you have to have a conversation and cringe when you tell somebody you're Nigerian, they tell you, oh, yeah, my my sister's nanny was somebody from Kenya. Because they really don't realize what? that it's, it's not relevant. That has, it's not no, relevant. That, has no, that has no connection <laughs> at all. It's not relevant. They have no clue, though. So it's like, you know, it's a hard pill to swallow, but there's, there's tons of room for us. I mean, we are actually cultural ambassadors, social brokers. Yeah in this thing called life that we are doing a lot of free work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? a, a lot of free work. Like, straight up. <laughs> straight up. I mean, yeah, I, I, we covered a lot. And, you know, I think I'm going to take this as an opportunity. Hold on really quickly. Because um, then we're going to transition into the conversation about the Nigerian band. So, let's talk about the Nigerian band. Like, recently... We've all seen in the news that um, President 45 has decided to put Nigeria on the ban list, preventing not necessarily tourists, but people from being able to come in and give birth to children and who will be natural citizens. So trying to limit the, um, the amount of opportunities that Nigerians who are one of the more populous black immigrants from Africa coming into the United States, limiting them from being able to seek residency, permanent residency here in the U.S. And I, and I wanted to know what your thoughts are, because I think you, you, you mentioned a lot about black positionality, and I think your experience and knowledge can really tap into some of the implications that it has on people here, people there, and even those who are visiting back and forth like international students. So I want to know what you think about that. I mean, first is U.S. is lost, <laughs> okay? Like, your loss, it is, it is our loss as people who are here in the United States, people who are benefiting from um, the development that folks are contributing to. That's one, right? Um, yeah. And then the second part is, I think it's been well-documented. Commentators have done a, a very nice job of highlighting the accomplishments of Nigerians, even when to the point of overshadowing the fact that there are other African countries that have also experienced this ban. Mm -hmm. And then they'll just pick out Nigeria and talk about how dope we are. And I, and I, as I said earlier, I appreciate it. It's good to hear, especially since we are oftentimes connected to things that are maybe not so pleasant. Mm -hmm. It is great to be Nigeria at this time in this post Wakanda, Black Panther, Ankara wearing, eat our food with your hands, <laughs> love. That's yeah. going on right now, right? Yeah. Um, so I think for me, as somebody who, you know, grew up here in the United States and knows that that has not always been the case, um, I think it's a one. It would be a wonderful time to be a Nigerian kid at this time. You know, it, it was, it's completely different from when I was here. Um, on the seriousness of the ban, it is uh, it's it's a policy, right? So we have to really unpack what that means and. I think that on on many levels, it's a message that is being brought out 
um, by this administration. And it's been and it's been very clear and it's been very documented what the president thinks about countries that occupy people of African descent, whether it be Haiti, whether it be Nigeria, whether it be, you know, he has he's been on record of calling these shithole countries, so forth and so on. So that's one thing, right? That's one thing. And there are serious ramifications for that. I can't give him or this policy much energy, just on a personal note, because it would be actually giving credence to his policies, his um, decision-making. And I think his legacy will speak for itself as in regards to, you know, what he has uh, put forward as what he wants his legacy to be. So I, I really can't give him or the administration that much energy. That's the most I can give to that. I, what, I, what, what I want to focus on is um, that it's, you know, it's our time. I think we've, if, again, if you look at it from a historical uh, sense, there is always a group that this country is um, targeting, um, whether it be the Middle East, whether it be Mexicans. It's our time um, right mm-hmm. now. And uh, we, are, we are being targeted. And I think that this ban will not have my my prayer anyways is that this ban will not have much legs to it you know um the whole knives i never carry last is because we are a resilient group of people and whether canada will embrace us the uk may continue to embrace us australia will embrace us because we will travel because we have the right to travel just like the u.s feels like they want to um, pull out the image that they are global citizens we too have the right to be global citizens. We have the right to explore this world and our opportunities um, and make that decision. And we will continue to explore it because I understand um, Nigerian people and their, their creativity and their talents and their rights to, to just do that. So the ban is unfortunate. I think it sends a very ugly message um, that is consistent with this administration's legacy that only really looks bad on them. I feel for all folks who are impacted by the ban because it's not just the ban, it is lives that will be impacted by this ban. But more importantly, I am hopeful, I am encouraged because again, what has come out of this is, is solidarity, is deeper discussions about our impact and influence on the world. Um, the stats that are coming out about us, I mean, I'm just super proud, uh, not just on being able to uh, obtain degree attainment, but I think the numbers that came out of one reporting with 70% of black doctors are of Nigerian descent. I mean, come on. Wow. Come on. Like, like, come on. No, like, like, give me, a, like, and I think it's, it's very consistent with the UK's numbers as well. Mm-hmm. Um Howard reported just a few years ago that a good 80% of its graduates from pharmacy school was Nigerians. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, what are, so if anything, this moment, I'll take this opportunity to really humble brag on us, encourage us, and by us, I mean all people of African descent, because, I mean, our origination is, is clear and well-documented on the continent, but even just even more recently, the numbers are like one out of five black people who are roaming this earth are of Nigerian descent. So this is a symbolic thing that is reflective of the administration and their um, consistent message of xenophobia. It has nothing to do with Nigeria. Um, uh, the, the reports that came out is that absolutely zero, zero documented terrorists have come from Nigeria that have landed in the United States. So this is an unfounded 
um, policy that, again, is going to be a part of this administration's legacy and will easily be reversed once the impact of the loss mm. uh, of our people being able to spread its magic on this world. It, it's, it's the U.S.'s loss. That's the way I feel about it. Um, I'll probably take some time to really reflect and put something in writing because I think it's an interesting time for us to be um, young and excited and professionals and researchers that I, I think we do have I always look at it like, you know, I think about my own legacy and my responsibility to providing insights that I just never got to see when I was growing up. So I think it's important for us to have this conversation. I think it's brilliant that we're having this conversation. And, you know, hopefully we'll also, uh, you know, archive this, but also put something um, in writing so we can really add to the discourse that's going on right now. And our perspective, I think, is is rich and, and needed. Um for this time, just like Walter Rodney's was, and um, France Fanon was, and you know all of these really these greats that we now know, we are, we're here, and this is this is our time. I mean, that's how I feel about it. I can't give too much life to it. I had somebody ask me the other day, it's like, <laughs> oh, it must be you know terrible, you know, the Nigerians are now doing this ban. I was like, to, for me to have a feeling about it is is for me to be surprised. Yeah, I'm not surprised by this administration. I, I'm, I'm disappointed for the families that are impacted, right. for sure. I, I empathize for those, but nobody's going to catch me flipping on, like, you know, me actually having any expectations for this administration. Not me. Yeah. I would not. I mean, I, I don't know who asked me. I know. I definitely know my wife, Wanda, had asked me as well. Like, yeah. She was like, so how do you feel about this band? And I was like... What can we talk about something else? Like this isn't like I'm not gonna give this any type of any type of Gary to soak at all. Like I cannot you feel me. Like I was just like I don't think I don't think is I wasn't surprised because I was like who else are you gonna pick on? Like you're gonna try to find we're everywhere. It's easy to pick on. A, it's easy to pick on a Nigerian. We're everywhere. We got some Nigerians. I swear we probably, I mean, I learned that Omarosa's dad was Nigerian. And I was like, why am I not surprised? He probably got some Nigerian aides right now that are freaking trying to help him get right. this country together. You cannot dodge us. We, we are all in D.C. First and everywhere. foremost, hours. I just cited it. Give me a break. It's not going to work. They tried it with Ebola. First of all, we not only cured Ebola, taught the world how to cure Ebola, and we sat there and we went back to Atlanta, where most of our planes were coming from, (laughs) and we went about business as usual. We will not be stopped. We won't. We We will not. We can't can't stop, won't stop. And I mean, it's funny because you you brought up something, and I took a screenshot before I, I had this conversation or set up this conversation with you because it was really interesting. It was on CNN. And it was done, it was a study by the Migration Policy Institute. You already mentioned like 70% of black doctors are Nigerians. And it, it mentioned um, a percentage of U.S. adults with at least a bachelor's degree by by country of birth, age 25 and older, as of 2018. 59%. Now, 59%. Come <laughs> like, on. That's golden. Who like, and America Who was like, you? America was like, 33! <laughs> 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 when we say we don't finish last, we're not playing. We're not, this is not just made up stuff. We're not we're not playing around. We you're telling will rightfully me a country that's a, our place. a country that's supposed to be known as this 
quote, quote, let's just call it what they call it, a third world country, even though, you know, and they, they have these narratives about Nigerians being everywhere and, and you're trying to ban these terrorists. And I'm like, these, t- quote, terrorists are more educated than you. Like, why would they even... They probably have a bachelor's in this crowded, it is country. unfounded. Can we talk about how that whole narrative about terrorists unfounded? Zero, zero. There's zero, there's zero, zero, zero documentation of any terrorist that has ever done anything to the United States. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, we got domestic terrorism. <laughs> domestic like nobody's terrorists. business. We domestic. got AK 47s. People, I thought, I knew that this country was immune to terror. When they shot up a whole elementary school back in the day when it was Connecticut, was it in Connecticut? Yeah, Connecticut. And they they shot up a whole school, and these people were still talking about they want their guns. Right. Do not talk to me about terrorism. Do not (laughs) talk to me about terrorism. I do not want to hear you. At all. (laughs) At all. I was like, terrorists where? Nigerians don't have time to terrorize. We They just trying to get their education. Like, what are we? We trying to get this doctor's degree. We trying to come in and feed the First family. All, send yeah, this money no. back to the home country. Like, don't nobody got time to make no bombs? Like, what? <laughs> Anybody trying to go they're up and not, shoot up a place? Like, who got time? They're, just, they're not even serious. I, I gotta leave that conversation back at the ranch where they where <laughs> they found it because that junk is nowhere. That is, there's no legitimacy whatsoever to me. Unfounded claims. Yeah, I, I had colleagues at the it job. Is, coming to me you know saying that and i was just like why even bother yourself to even worry about they're not gonna stop us one they're not gonna stop us two there's nothing there's okay we found our ways to be able to you know as you mentioned we're cultural brokers in a position that we're in as scholars and researchers but nigerians have done so much for forget america like they've done so much for other places in the world that like if you don't want the talent Best believe somebody will get. Somebody come will on take now, it. we know the deal. It doesn't we matter whether it's deal. music, Canada, UK, Australia. Hello, we all eating. Okay, there's jollof for everybody. And we're versatile. We don't even have to speak your language. We don't even care. Right, we'll sit here and study math and science and call it a day. <laughs> we know how to speak work. <laughs> Do you understand? <laughs> we know how to speak work. <laughs> we know how to speak work, and everybody in any country understands work. And when Nigerians come in, that's the universal language, work. And we come in and we put in that work, and we make your country look good, and we thrive, and we mind our business. So <laughs> but, mind our business. when they brought that to me, I was like, I'm not surprised because he's, he's always had his eye on Nigeria, and the administration's always tried to find a way to to try to suppress any type of growth in the black immigrant nation. So I was just like, whatever, man, like it is what it is. But I know some other people felt strongly about it, but I do think that is a really good spin that you, you shared on a serious note, as far as how we do need to just take this as an opportunity to humble brag and do take this as an opportunity for us to really shine. Cause other people, it's kind of, it's kind of, it kind of makes the country look silly. Um, You know, when you, when you try to spotlight one nation and other people are like, Oh, well let's, let's, Pull out the facts because when you when you put the spotlight on somebody who whether you want to try to criminalize them or whatever you put the spotlight on them and then everybody starts to look for receipts and look up information and you're like and oh. that is why i'm surprised because you know the media is a double-edged sword mm-hmm. right they could have used that same energy to talk about foolishness because we are not uh you know we we are not a perfect people like nobody is right, right. but the fact that i'm watching 
and this might be the fact that we're a religious country. I'm watching news report after news report after news report, and if it's not a blessing that nobody is mentioning any of our other types of narratives that come along, I don't even want to say, but folks are 100% focusing on the undeniable facts. Numbers are just numbers. 59% is crazy. 70%, you have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. You have to pay attention to that. Yeah. That is literally your black workforce, period. Mm. Your black healthcare workforce, period. Heavy. You cannot, we're not going anywhere. Let's just say that. We're not going anywhere. So, like I said, the same way that being in the U.S. affords you advantages that allows for you to believe at a young age that you could be the president of the United States or you could be the leader of the free world or you could be a global citizen is the same aspirations that can be extended to anybody in the world, including Nigerians. Nigerians, we have no limits. (laughs) We have no limits. We do not put limits on ourselves at all. So if anything, like you said, it is a, you know, just to circle back, it is a moment that we can sit here and gather ourselves and think about and pay homage and, and give reverence to the people before us who really set a a beautiful stage that we would continue on a legacy of our parents and our grandparents, so forth and so on, that basically says that with an opportunity, the skies are limited. And we've been able to manifest that in very real ways that are being acknowledged on a on an international platform that allows for me to say that I'm a super proud Nigerian and for me to take this moment to reflect that this has not always been the case mm-hmm. um, in which this has not always been the case where we have been um, thought of in an exemplary manner or have been um, put on uh, a platform that has highlighted our good. So I take this moment seriously. I want to, you know, just be in the space that is grateful and, and gives gratitude to uh, a time where I would be able to see that you watch the news and it's about Nigeria and it's not about famine, disease, mm-hmm. war, this, that, and the other, but it's about our brilliance, our talent. And, um, and that I think really speaks to Nigeria as a country that says, despite some of our challenges with government, it does not define the people who are resilient, amazing, and talented and brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I could not say that any better at all. <laughs> like, I, that's, that's, I can't even, I ain't got no words to even add to that. I think that was well said. Um, I do think, you know, before we wrap up, I do think there is one, one firm, like, point of, I would say, harm that could, that uh-huh. it could have. And I learned this today, just talking with, I was at a faculty senate meeting today at my, at my uh, institution. And, um, you know, our president was attending there and he did mention how, like one of the things that this administration is trying to do now to international students, specifically those from Nigeria, is to raise the visa fee, right? So like, so now they're trying to raise the visa fee and really try to take a lot out of the money that state schools use um, for international students and to try to help. And, you know, he's trying to take that and use that for the wall. But I do think that a lot of families might be impacted, as you mentioned, which I, which kind of, you know, I feel for because they will be impacted, you know, students who had plans, who are in the middle of their education, maybe second out of a four-year institution who are trying to sustain their visa. And, you know, they're already 
made it, you know, by saving up money to try to travel up here and their family has contributed a lot because we know how the inflation goes from Naira to dollar is not sweet. So like thinking about yeah. how to transfer that, trans, you know, translate that money to be able to keep up a visa. I do think that is, you know, a little bit harmful, but as you mentioned already, you know, in, on every level, specifically, I know you've already highlighted health, but I mean, I think about, I think about it everywhere, and I and I know I probably should have saved this episode for October first, but but I'm gonna, every I feel like there's pride, there's pride with us everywhere because I think about it, you know, like you said, your your RN is a Nigerian somewhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, your your doctor, as you mentioned, is Nigerian. Your taxi driver, your Uber driver, like your your um even your entertainers now, your musicians, your actors and actresses, and and I mean your even your athletes. I mean, Nigerians are dominating like the athletic you know realm, football, basketball. Uh-huh. I mean, the entertainment. MVP is, Our actors are Nigerian now. Yeah, I mean we're we're in there. I mean, I was I'm and I plan to do episodes on these things as well. But everybody's talking about you know the NBA the hot thing in the NBA now, Giannis Adetokounmpo, it, he's Greek, but he's Nigerian. <laughs> like, if you look him up, he's... If they don't stop with that name claim that whole Greek thing, the fact that he's Nigerian. He's Nigerian. Like, his... And pop, a lot of those kids are. There's not yeah. just him. There's an Adebayo. Yeah. There is... There's so many. There's Yoruba. Uh, there's a couple of Yoruba dudes Victor right Victor Lodipo, Bamadebayo. Like, I mean, we deep. I mean, come on. We deep. We are in there. Football, basketball. It doesn't matter. You We're name in it. There. You know, so that's why I'm like, it doesn't, you know, so you think you're trying to do harm, but you're going to get this flood of pride coming from everywhere across the nation because you done forgot how deep we are in this country and we don't come out the woodworks you know, to rep our flag, you know, so I do think that this is a beautiful opportunity for us to really, really shine, and so I, I don't take this as, as a negative, neither um, should anyone else who's listening, and I'm kind of glad you put that perspective um, in, you put that in perspective for us, um, so yeah, but overall, I think this has just been a dope conversation, like, I've enjoyed my time talking with you that I lost track of time, um, but I really appreciate you uh, jumping on the podcast with me and um, is there any way that people can get in touch with you are you on social media how can people keep up with you and what you're doing do you want to share with us um i'm not super on social media but you can just um find me uh, maybe maybe that means i should be I don't know. um you can find me via email Okay. <laughs> Google me and find me via email, or find somebody who knows me. Contact Kels. He will be my, he'll be my filter, and he will get me. <laughs> I got in you. Contact you. I got you. You know that 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 works for me. So um, yeah, I I, I say it because I'm just not. The scrolling is a lot for me right now, <laughs> and I know that this is not this is not the. The, the movement that we're going on as scholars, like I understand that social media can be a, a, a beautiful tool to uh, get many eyes on your work. And I'm working on that. That's my new year's thing. Work with me. <laughs> I got you. I got you. Well, as you already mentioned, if you are trying to get in touch with Dr. Yanku, please hit me up and I will make sure there I try to broker the situation and get you in touch with her. If you're ever interested in researching, you're in, and researcher as well you have a passion similar to what you heard already then hit me up and we'll make sure that we try to get 
connected. Because one thing we do do is we all about this movement and making sure that we get published, we get, you know, we get tenure. Like, we all about that grind. Amen. So, Amen. Yes. We claim it. We claim it and we shall Amen. continue. You know, so... <laughs> Sis, I appreciate you taking the time again. Uh, this really means a lot to me. Um, I'm going to let you enjoy the rest of your night. Uh, you too. Thank you so much, and you have a blessed, and we'll talk again soon. You too. Tell the family I said hi, the wifey, everybody holds down. Very proud of you, my friend, and yes, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. You have a good one. All right. Bye. So that's going to do it for this episode of My Black is Transnational. I hope you enjoyed both parts of my conversation with Dr. Ifenyiwa Oyeniku. Thank you to Dr. Oyeniku for spending time with us and just really having a blast and, and really enlightening us with your knowledge and your insight. If you want to listen to more episodes of the podcast and subscribe, you can do that on any of your favorite podcast listening apps. If you're interested in being a guest or you just want to learn more about the past episodes or more about our guests, you can check us out at www.blacktransnational.wixsite.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at Black Transnational Podcast. So thank you all again for listening to the show. I hope you all enjoy it. That'll do it for us for now. My name is Dr. Kalechi Bay Lamberts. My Black is Transnational. And I hope by the end of this, yours will be too. Until next time.